Cheerio. As human beings, don't we enjoy enjoyment? This is Five Golden Things, The Liberty Lists, a podcast of whimsy from Liberty Church Collingswood and libertycollingswood.org. We'll hear from friends as we explore everything from potent potables to morsel delectables, awkward laughables to moment teachables. You'll get lots of different categories, but remember that for each one, there can be only five. Plus a mulligan or two. Five, four, three, two, one. Lift off. Hello, everybody. We are coming at you with five golden things once again. I am your humble host, Jim, and I am with a man of many hats, including Pat Legal, Pat McAdams, our digital ministry director. Pat, how are you? I'm doing fine. I'm not really nervous about today's episode, which, which is a nice, <laughs> well, a nice well, break. Well, we'll see. So uh, what we're going to do today is we announced a church a couple of weeks ago. And if you're on Christian social media, or even if you subscribe to the New York Times, there's, there is a couple articles. Tim Keller has been a guiding light of late 20th century, early 20th, 21st century Protestantism, church planting, longtime pastor at Redeemer Pres in New York City. And we're going to be, he died a couple of weeks ago. He had had stage four pancreatic cancer for a long time. And it made sense to me to give some reflections. Top five ways that I've been influenced personally by Tim Keller. Okay. Um, Before we kick it off, um, it seems like he has like a fairly high approval rating for, you know, someone in the Christian circles who like just being a Christian and having your voice out there and your in your opinions and your beliefs, yeah. it's going to be like automatically like polarizing. Yeah. But he seemed to be like obviously like the way his like church was planted and like the people in, in his church. Yeah. How how was he able to? Uh, is there any insight you have as to how he was kind of like stay like above the fray? Yeah. For the most part, yeah. I mean, you know, yeah. again. That, that's a great question. I'd say three things. Okay. Skill. Luck and Holy Spirit. Okay. So he was somebody very, very humble. And so he, he was somebody that didn't, you know, take the culture wars, for example. He, he didn't not have opinions about socio-political things, but his tone and the way that he engaged people that disagreed with him, super humbly, super reasonably, I think that kind of de-escalates a lot of the rancor that Christian figures receive. And and in some cases, Christian figures deserve that rancor because they don't comport themselves well, other times not. In addition to that, maybe the luck aspect is over is slightly irreverently stated. Maybe that's number three. (laughs) Yeah, they call it it the Holy Spirit guiding that Redeemer was planted with an emphasis, among other things, on serving the city and social justice. So I think that 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 gained a lot of capital. Um, Sure. But then the third thing, luck, which I guess is also Holy Spirit and skill. One of the lead pastors in the Liberty Community of Churches, Scott Crosby, Liberty Fairmount, came to Liberty Fairmount from being on staff in Redeemer, New York City. And Scott says, and I hope this isn't talking out of school about Scott or, or Tim, other Redeemer staffers said that Tim Keller, when he was talking with people that had a problem with him or disagreed with him about something, had had Jedi mind control power <laughs> where where somebody would be really upset and come at him hot about something, but just in his very quiet, understated mm-hmm. way, would basically say, these are not the droids you're looking for. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and, and say, well, okay, you're asking about this, but 
the question behind the question is how do we think about this whole other thing, which is which was the root issue. Yes. But then also, again, de-escalated the the rancor about whatever yeah. s- whatever surface okay. is, issue it was. And and I think too specifically in New York, he was one of the few or one of a small handful of pastors that were spotlighted after nine eleven, and one of the largest I think services in Redeemer history was the Sunday after 9-11 and there were a lot of non-regular churchgoers non-Christians that packed into Redeemer in the weeks after after 9-11 and Keller with the gospel served a ton of people well beyond the normal reach of who is at Redeemer and I think that that earned him permanent goodwill in in the city and it just kind of radiated from there okay all right bonus follow-up do you think Bruce and Tim Keller ever met, ever hung out, whether it's like before 9-11, because like, Bruce obviously like 9-11, he has like some connections there. Yeah, it was kind of like, yep. that was like some yeah. part of his like research a little bit. Huh, what, what, what do you think the chances are they oh, ever were like in the, love, same, in the same room? Or? Uh, as far as I know, not. Yeah, but. And Keller was somebody that loved Broadway and opera and that sort of thing. As far as I know, he wasn't much of a pop, pop music sort yeah. of guy. But I think the most likely overlap would have been, and I don't know whether or not this happened, if Keller attended Bruce on Broadway. That, mm. So, so right. if, if they were in the same room, it would have been at the Keller yeah. Theater. Okay. When was that? 2018, 2019. Yeah. Uh, so I'll, I'll, uh, let, let's get our people to check yeah. on that. Did, did Tim go? <laughs> we'll see if, if the Keller camp will interview that yeah. uh, or entertain <laughs> that interview request. We'll see. <laughs> Keller on Springsteen. <laughs> Oh man! Um, all right, so let's. Uh, that's out of the way. Yep. Number five. Let Unless you, yeah. there's, there's, this there's, podcast will be less than three a hours. You probably. <laughs> a little bit more background, Pat. Yeah. The, at first, I thought about not either doing a podcast or a blog or giving much comment about Keller's passing. This will shock you. I'm not a huge fan of parasocial behavior, <laughs> where if, say, a celebrity musician dies, and then you get this long social media post about how this artist, you know, changed your life, and you're destroyed without this person, and blah 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 blah. So I, it, it just seems very performative to me, and sure, a little icky. It's fair. But news of Keller's passing broke on a Friday a couple of weeks ago, and. I was reflecting that weekend, even to take that specific weekend, on how much Tim Keller stuff was all around me and at Liberty Collingswood. So before church that Sunday, two days after the news that he died, came down the pike, I did a deacon training session before church over Zoom with Kathy Santavanez and Maya Root. And our main deacon training material is Tim Keller's Ministry of Mercy book. And then at the church service itself, our free book that we offer every Sunday is Prodigal God by Tim Keller. And then it was a long Sunday for me. That's when we had the congregational meeting that afternoon. Then went to Missional Enrichment, which is a deeper discipleship program that we have on a rolling basis that we offer most years where there's not a pandemic. And we even met at your house for Missional Enrichment (laughs) way back Mm -hmm. in the day. Tim Keller is all over our missional enrichment, where that specific afternoon we were talking about some notes from Tim and Kathy Keller, his wife, about church office, about sexuality, but then also in larger pieces of missional enrichment, spent a ton of time with his book, Center Church. And then also he wrote a smaller booklet a couple of years ago called How to Reach the West Again, and his materials on faith and vocation. So 
that one weekend even punctuated to me, wow, there's, there's a lot of Keller DNA here. Other books that I've read, and I'm not saying this to brag, but just to say, man, I, really, I went through his Amazon you know, list of books. So in addition to those, Reason for God, Every Good Endeavor, Making Sense of God, which actually might be my favorite. It came out in 2016. Counterfeit Gods, King's Cross, a book about encountering Jesus in the Gospels. He wrote a book on preaching and then also generous justice, plus countless commentaries. Many of his sermons were taken and put into expository commentaries that I'll use periodically for sermon series. Articles, sermons, including back in the old days on cassette. I would play Tim Keller's sermons from Redeemer on cassette, seminars, and his fingerprints are over a ton of, of what I do, maybe more than any other, any other Christian writer. And speaking of Christian writers, I feel like I've learned a lot about people that he would quote a lot. So ho- hopefully people, I, I, I desire that the mark of my ministry is that people will know more about Bruce Springsteen and the MCU as a result of sitting <laughs> under my teaching for a long time. The, with, with Keller, he was a gateway into a lot of different influential authors and thinkers. So Charles Taylor, a Roman Catholic philosopher, Flannery O'Connor, the Southern writer, Dorothy Sayers, Robert Bella, Neil Postman, Alistair McIntyre, Andrew Del Banco, N.T. Wright, Richard Lovelace, and it just keeps going. And some of those I've accessed and read a good bit of their stuff as a result of Keller constantly quoting them. In other cases, I haven't done deep dives on these other people because I know them so well through what <laughs> Keller through, through what Keller said. And, and if you listen and read to him long enough, like everybody, even somebody as brilliant as Keller was, you can predict where he's going. With, with, with it, it's, it's like if you know a musician very well and you sure. can sort of anticipate where this solo is going to going to go. You, you could begin to like pick your spots and say, "I, I feel Alistair McIntyre is going to be deployed in 38 <laughs> seconds," and then. And then boom, my, my one exception, oh, and also that weekend, a week before his death, I had just bought, and I'm, I'm about halfway through now, a biography that came out about Tim Keller. I didn't know that he mm-hmm. was going to pass so soon after I bought, bought the book. So that's yeah. another way that like in that small weekend window of time, Keller, Keller was everywhere. He was a huge J.R.R. Tolkien and C.S. Lewis fan. Yeah. And Tim and Kathy in the biography, one of their main commonalities coming together was their love of Tolkien and C.S. Lewis. And apparently, Kathy Keller, as a high school student in the early 60s, I guess, was pen pals with C.S. Lewis. Wow. It, it, it was before, she, she was a voracious reader, loved Lewis's fiction and nonfiction. And the way that Kathy herself tells the story in the book is she just didn't know any better. And C.S. Lewis had not gotten super big in America by that point. So as far as she could tell, and this is before internet and everything, nobody knew who C.S. Lewis was. She figured he was just some obscure English writer, and she found his address somehow, wrote him letters, and he wrote back. <laughs> so see, a, a, a very old C.S. Lewis corresponding with, with Kathy Keller, wow. um, uh, including some like personal problems that uh. C.S. <laughs> Lewis would walk her through, uh, teen, teenage drama, plus like big thoughts and, and big ideas. So they were both huge into Lewis and Tolkien. I've resisted those things. 
Okay. I th- I think they're they're overdone. So, okay. Yeah. Like um like reading them or like having thoughts or comments about like both. Both. Okay. okay. I, I I think they're overused in Christian circles. Okay. So yeah. when when they zig in those directions, I I zag just yeah. out of. Okay. Spite and pride. Gotcha. <laughs> uh, as an aside, my favorite science fiction book of all time, I think C.S. Lewis called it like the most demonic or like the most satanic book ever or something. Oh. It's like a science fiction book. I don't really get like that vibe from it, but it maybe, maybe, it, maybe I didn't read it the right way. Okay. Uh, what, uh, what, what book was it? Uh, Star Maker. It's called Star Maker by uh, like Olaf Stapleton. Yeah. Okay. So anyway, but it's... Banned. Yeah. <laughs> right. Thanks, Pat. And, and then briefly before we get into the top five, sort of my own encountering Keller for the first time. And as Tim has a Kathy, Jim has an Emily. And in 97, when we were both in college dating, Emily did an off-term in New York, serving underprivileged kids uh, in a couple of local schools and, and programs. Lived, she lived in a women's shelter slash convent on, wow. Lexington Ave- on Lexington Ave in, in Manhattan and started attending Redeemer, which had been planted just a few years before that. They were meeting at Hunter College, and she would tell me, hey, there's this new church in the heart of Manhattan that seems to be going really well, and there's this preacher there that named Tim Keller, and everybody, everybody loves this guy. So, again, my misanthropic streak. Keller did become really, really popular among Christian leaders, seminary students. I was at seminary in the early, in the early 2000s. He was the next big thing, and so I resisted him. So in my my first year of seminary, I would walk around saying, I don't like Tim Keller at all. I just don't like to go with the popular crowd Uh, because he was too – not him personally or how he would comport himself, but his his exploding influence made him too cool for school for me. Sure. But as a young pastor and preacher – I went through a lot of different preaching styles, and Pat, I don't know if you've heard any of my early sermons from my days in West Philly or, or in Texas. Chances are you haven't, because I personally have destroyed all of those. <laughs> That'd be weird if sermons. I did. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Yeah. So on the black so, market, I got like a secret stash. <laughs> yeah, that would be impressive. From Napster, uh, LimeWire, or something. I, I personally had the honor of dumping all of the master cassette tapes of my sermons in West Philly into the dumpster. And when it came to Collingswood from Texas, I was given the option of, hey, do you want like a digital archive of all of your stuff? And I said, no, keep it. Wow. Okay. Uh, and, and it's not on their website anymore. So they, they could be gone too. So, if, but if you would have listened to those early sermons of mine at different phases, I kind of glommed on to different preachers and so I had like a John Piper phase. Jim is John Piper. I had a John MacArthur phase. I, okay. I had a, I'm less embarrassed by my James Montgomery Boyce phase. I, I really enjoyed Boyce. But then it just kind of Is that all on. because there's like J's the first letter? <laughs> <laughs> my phone book yeah. opens to J. Exactly. The, in midway through, maybe not until my second church in Texas, I realized like, I'm probably, and I'm not saying I'm as good a preacher as Tim Keller by any stretch, but I'm more of a Keller guy as far mm-hmm. as approach and and comportment and tone. So, so, so that's when I just decided to to own it. And last connection there, Keller got an MDiv in the '80s from Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia, which is where I went in the late '90s. And many of the professors that were on faculty with Tim continued to be at Westminster, and including some people that 
Tim has called mentors of his. Uh, he, he didn't want to plant Redeemer in, in New York City, but there are a couple of key voices in the Westminster world and circles that said, Tim, we really think you're the person to, to, to move up to New York and, and start doing this. And then the, there were tons of Redeemer staffers that would commute down on a daily mm. or semi-daily basis to Philly to, to go to seminary. So a lot of overlap there, which turned me off because oh, these guys are sure. these guys are everywhere. But <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's that's my story, and I'm sticking to it, Pat. Okay. Uh, the last thing, it seems like he was probably like got really popular like the early 2000s, like it's when he kind of started. Yep. I guess he was probably you know what, in his early 50s, right? Because didn't he pass away when he was like 73? Yeah. Is that is that like a little bit uncommon for like kind of like quote unquote like famous like Christian people? Yep. Uh, you know, pastors to kind of like in their 50s where they kind of like get big or is that kind of like, you know? Yeah, that, that's also a good question. And I, I think you're right. Part of the variable there is the emergence of technology. So yeah. in some ways, or you could even compare Tim Keller to the influence and scope of James Boyce, who is a longtime pastor at 10th Pres, yeah. Pat, where you attended for a while. Yes. From the 60s through, I think he died in fall of 99. The, but both, you know, brilliant expositors of scriptures, I think very good cultural exegetes alike as well, but totally different media world. So Boyce was book publishing and Christian radio, mm-hmm. the Bible study hour and cassettes. Keller was a generation or half a generation later. And when Keller really took off in the early 2000s, that coincided with the digital age and, and that sort of thing. But I think it's also not just the variability of that factor. He his The first book that he ever published was Reason for God in 2008. And apparently people have been clamoring for him to mm. do more writing, do more speaking on the Christian circuit. But Keller was resolute saying, I have a, I have a damn church to plant here. Sure. And, and it's not about me building my platform. Yeah. It's about being as faithful as I can to this specific context. And it was only when Redeemer got super big and there was yeah. more staff when he could turn his attention. But but it did seem to him to be an act of service yeah. and, and not not just uh, build, building himself up. And I, I, I haven't gotten to that point in the biography yet, but it would, whether or not he actually said it or felt it, I, I think it, it would have been of a piece with, what I've learned of Keller over the years, uh, he just wasn't in it for for himself, yeah. and, and he would have been very happy to be a country pastor of a fifty-person church forever, sure. die and go and be with Jesus and be forgotten. I, I think it, it, he he seems to be one that would have been as content with that as all of the, the gotcha. famous celebrity, which which relates to one of my top fives. All right. Well, I think it's uh, I think it's time. Okay. Let's let's uh, number five. Counting down influence from Keller, learning that sermons don't have to be showy and bombastic. So the first time I went to Redeemer was in the late night, was visiting Emily when she was in New York. And do you know from Arrested Development, the running joke with uh, Michael, Sarah's character, that's uh, uh, the the teenager, uh, Michael's son, Oh, blanking out on his name, but but his his girlfriend um, and the and the running joke is that she's so nondescript that everybody forgets that he has this girlfriend. <laughs> her 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 name is Anne, but every time 
Michael Sarah mentions and my girlfriend, everybody goes, her? <laughs> <laughs> and, and that was my experience of hearing Keller for the first time. A, a meteoric rise to prominence, at least in the Christian world. But here is this beanpole, gawky, awkward-looking, quiet-talking, professorial preacher who is the polar opposite of other famous preachers in the late 20th, early 21st century that that used a lot of heightened rhetoric. <clears throat> Keller didn't at all. And as I exited my bombastic stages <laughs> of, of preaching, that became really attractive to me. And I think it speaks to a different type of person and set of expectations for churchgoers and non-churchgoers. So I think it, it, it fit the type of ministry context that I wanted to be in, including here at Liberty Collingswood. So not showing bombastic, but then also Keller's voice was very him. And I took from that that in my own preaching, and this is what I tell younger preachers sometimes, you don't want to make sermons all about you. And sometimes over the years, I probably veered like too, too, there's too much, Jim. But, 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 but the opposite is don't preach anonymously and, and be who you are and that, that's part of the embodied experience of the Christian faith. It's not just anybody preaching to you, but it's you. And Keller, by his manner, delivery style, how he preached, moved me in that direction. Yeah. Okay. All right. I mean, I, I would say, like, I mean, not the, like, the showy and bombastic mm-hmm. part, but um, when you do preach, like, and, like, knowing you, like, that, that's who you are. There's no, like, not putting in a show or kind of, like, you know, Maybe you're tampering things down a little bit, but, you know, um, again, that's not part of, like, the show me and bombastic part, but, yeah. like, you're that's true to who you are. Right. Which, yeah, again, I think it'd be weird to kind of be otherwise. Yeah. It'd be, you know, kind of built, go up there and be kind of just this, like, blank figure. Right. Like, hiding all your true, like, experiences and, and, and life and thoughts yeah. and, you know, yeah, it'd, there, it'd be strange. There, there are actually schools of thought with preaching that move in that direction, and I, I think it's bonkers. Yeah. But, it, but even here at Liberty Collingswood, the two primary preachers have been me and Eric Mitchell, it would have been weird for Eric to preach like a Jim clone or for me to preach like like an Eric clone. For and, sure. And Keller gave permission yeah. for, for, <laughs> yeah. for all of those things. Okay. Uh, number four. Number four. And Turtle Doves, the, you'll hear that these influences, or th- these I think are you know specific hallmarks of my own ministry and, and preaching, and they, they, they came from Keller. So engaging religious skeptics from the pulpit Tim Keller, and in his own preaching materials, when he would talk about preaching over the years, and also in, in the book that he wrote about it, you talk with skeptics about their objections to Christianity as friends and neighbors and not as enemies. And I, one of the unfortunate threads in American preaching in the 20th century was you just treat other people like enemies, like if they're not totally on your side, either theologically, politically, whether it's different churches being just constantly slammed from the pulpit because they're not us, we don't, they don't have it all together like we do, and then even more people that are outside of the church and, and, and not people of faith, just blasting, 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 and when you do engage skepticism from that framework, it's a lot of straw man arguments where you're just taking the worst versions of what a sure. uh, skeptic would say and, and take down that sham argument. Uh, the Apostle Paul says our, our struggle, our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the, the rulers, the principalities, 
uh, we fight sin, death, and the devil. We don't fight other people. And going back to one of the things that we said at the very be beginning, Pat, or your question, uh, Tim Keller was known for respectful engagement with, with, with everybody. And, and there's no other way, even when I try to give pushback to secularity in, 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 in different ways. So it would be a fail for my preaching and teaching ministry for a religious skeptic to sit under a few of my sermons and think, well, we already agree about everything. <laughs> sure. That, that, that's one of the ways that, that preaching becomes lame and bad. The, but then on the other hand, it's okay if, if a religious skeptic at Liberty Collingswood would say like, well, we're really on different pages and I think we disagree. Whether that's a permanent disagreement or like more conversation would would bring some change. I, I hope people feel like their thoughts and opinions are well respected and well represented. And again, that's that that's something from from Keller. And as somebody that converted to Christianity in, in college, I've sat under plenty of sermons where from up front you'll hear now, people that are not followers of Jesus will say this and this and this. It just bums me out when I have that experience of being told what irreligious friends and neighbors think and feel. I'm sitting there thinking, they don't think they and don't feel that at all. At all. No. Yeah. And, and, but that, that just gave, gains cheap points for the sermon and the preacher. Sure. But it's not compelling to skeptics at all. And then also, it's not equipping the Christians in your church to be able to engage with those people. Because that that that's not where they are, no. and, and and so you're yeah, you're, you're gonna just look gonna silly, yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, a two part follow up on that. Yes. Um, is that something um, for the I guess the uh, preachers or like church leaders who do kind of like you know make it a little bit more like us versus them? Is mm -hmm. that um, like to fire up the base or to kind of show like you know I'm on fire for Christ and like you know we need to you know win over Satan? Is it like yeah. Uh, you know, or is like to build camaraderie. Like, is there a kind of like a couple of different big things as to why kind of like preachers will go down that route? Yeah, I, I, I think it's a both and, and there there are some healthy aspects of that. So, so every preaching style has its own set of pros and cons, strengths and and downsides. Even if you take a positive version of that, hey, we're just on fire for Jesus, but it can come across a little oppositionally. You need yeah. to be careful of the oppositional effect. Sure, and and that's also an interpretive choice a little bit. So, there are. The Bible's a big book, and you could make a biblical case for preaching pretty oppositionally based on you know, prophetic literature, some of the sermons of, uh, of Jesus, etc. So I think it's taking it too far to say Keller's preaching, including how he engaged skeptics, is the only way to do it. I think for ministry contexts like Manhattan and Collingswood, I think it's the wisest way to do it. And then also there's plenty of biblical foundations for it at yeah. the same time. All right. Sounds good. Um, you said two parts? Uh, oh, yeah. So I had, um, and is that something that, like, so for you, do you have to, like, work on that? Or is that kind of just something, like, your natural, like, personality and, like, kind of, like, God looking over you where, like, you're not even really interested or don't have that, like, desire to say, you know what? You know. Yeah. You know, I, I feel this, like, I feel this way or, like, you know, have kind of people bug me, like, you know, not Christians or skeptics, like, in the stuff they say about Christians that, like, I'm not that way. Yeah. Is it ever, like, tempting to kind of, like want to like fire back in a sermon kind of like or for sure yeah okay yeah, yeah. it's one of there was somebody i forget if this was a christian leader or otherwise uh, he was talking about how when he's mad at somebody he 
writes an email that he doesn't send, mm. just kind of <laughs> blasting the yeah. other person and then make sure that it's not sent yep. to get out of their system. Yeah. And and I think I think a lot of that oppositional preaching comes from a place of aggrievement and insecurity. Yeah. Which I don't mean as criticism, because I can certainly feel aggrieved and insecure, but it's it it's just a form of punching down where it equivalent of junk food, you'll get a yeah. quick burst of energy, but it's setting up the congregation to be an unhealthier version of yeah. itself at the same time. Yeah. Okay. And I think Keller and Redeemer's presence in New York through various seasons of life and ideologies in New York even is a yeah. testimony to how, hey, we're not gonna fight we're gonna articulate grace and truth robustly, but we're not here to fight back. And you're going to have to live with that. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Yep. All right. Uh, What do you got for number three? Yes. It's okay in Christian preaching to be intellectually rigorous. Now, the danger or downside of that is that sermons in the stream can be too pedantic, too scholarly, just only reaching the head but 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 not the heart uh, so but then dangers of hyper emotional preaching is that, that that there's no life of the mind yeah. that's engaged in any way shape or form and, and to me that sort of preaching becomes empty calories if mm-hmm. if the uh if the overly intellectual preaching is a high protein diet it's just kind of like turn you into a yeah. lead balloon the 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 over emotional without enough head is just marshmallows that, that you're going to get sick after get you get you get sick after a while and and I hope in my own preaching that there is a combination of head and heart but that the head part is genuine and and robust and part of it is I want to trust the Liberty Collingswood congregation and this morning Pat we're recording on Sunday June 4th before church going to preach about election and predestination this okay. this morning which which is going to have a couple of like stay with me mentally <laughs> mo- moments to it, but but I do that as a sign of respect to the congregation that hey you're you're not here to be entertained for a half an hour when I'm preaching, but I am asking of you to give me your ears, your mind, and in in your heart, and I hope that one of the effects of robustly intellectual preaching, as it engages skepticism or otherwise, gives Christians confidence that there is ballast to the Christian faith, especially when you're stretched in, in different ways. There was, a, there was a Puritan preacher in the 17th century named uh, Stephen Charnock, and he wrote a, he gave a series of sermons that became a really, really thick book called The Doctrine of God. And I heard a lecture about that book and from a church history professor, and the church history prof- one of the questions that he raised in his lecture about the book this is really like densely argued theology, Bible, philosophy. How on earth could regular congregates have followed? And he said, my answer in part is they couldn't, but that was the point. So this is soon after the Reformation when so many churches were ejected out of the Roman Catholic Church. And one of the fears on the part of Christians that had no choice but to be Protestants at that point is, Roman Catholics at that point had all of the universities, had all of the heavy-hitting intellectuals, and people would wonder, "Hey, like, do we have an, Does this have any heft, yeah. or are, are are we just going to be mile wide and inch deep?" Mm-hmm. So Charnock at his preaching was purposely obtuse so that 
his congregants could be assured, hey, we have this part covered. You don't need to worry. And that's, I, I, that's not a personal goal of mm-hmm. mine, but, it, but I, I, I appreciate the impulse. And that means, too, and this relates to treating skeptics with, with, with respect, one, one of the Keller schools of thought with preaching is this whole idea of representing other views well um, and to, to be able to represent other, other views well, you need to study them. You need to understand them. Sort of like if, if there's a marriage fight, who among us loves the feeling of when we feel like our spouse has not properly understood or hurt us? Very few of us. <laughs> the, those are the marriage masochists. Yeah, in, the sickos. In, yeah, yeah in, instead, even in the midst of dis- disagreement. So me and Emily, even when we're at each other a little bit, not on the same page, I at least hope that in our marriage that we understand and see and, and feel the proper things about the other, and that's a shared baseline of trying to, trying to, to work, through, work through things. Last thing about the intellectual rigor, and, and this is more of a, a calling upon lead pastors or people that, that, that are the primary preachers. Uh, I, I do feel and have gathered from Keller over the years that this is not my only job as a pastor or even a preacher, but it's part of it. I, I need to cultivate my own life of the mind. And if you're going to be somebody that preaches pretty much every Sunday, I've got to have a deeper well of thought world about life, the universe, and everything than just what I'm saying on on a given Sunday. And sermons can, over time, feel thin if the preacher is emptying the bucket completely <laughs> every sermon it's it's sort of like i'm a pat as you know i'm the best harmonica player at liberty collingswood i am aware <laughs> okay yeah. thank you the you didn't say at liberty collingswood i'm the best harmonica player. <laughs> that's where i thought you were going with okay. that <laughs> pat legal got nervous there for a second the uh, so i i play on music team here with with friends over the years that you know play small gigs like i can be on stage for for a couple of songs, especially with blues harmonica, which is more demanding of a genre for harmonica mm-hmm. players than, than, than folk and rock. I'll tell people, hey, I'm good to play, to sit in on blues harmonica for a couple of songs, and I think, I, I think I'll sound pretty good, but you don't want me there for the whole set because you're going to hear by that third, fourth, and fifth song, he's kind of playing the same Yeah, you're going to be exposed. <laughs> yeah, you know, over and over again. And preaching can become exposed as undernourishing over time if there's not a larger thought world and life of the mind so that I'm not so that I'm drawing from like larger buckets of consideration over time with stuff on any given Sunday than just I have to figure out what to say about this again yeah. for, for, for another Sunday yeah. and, and Keller was pretty great at that gotcha okay so, so number three is um, the anti-George Bush strategy not to be, <laughs> not to be political but you know George Bush he actually was a, like a, a pretty bright guy yeah. who like part of the strategy was like, you know, dumb him down. He's the every man, you know, yeah. he's not like too above you. He yeah. can kind of, you know, be with like the common folk. So, uh, yeah. Yeah. And, and you see politicians go, yes. you go, you go in different All ways. All the time. Like yeah. One of the, uh, so Bush GW gave yeah. a statement about Keller after his death and was, okay. what, said how much he appreciated knowing Keller and huh. was influenced by his ministry. That goes back to point number five, just be you. Do you remember in the presidential debates in 2000, Republican debate, and each person was asked, 
uh, who's your, what philosopher has been mo most influential uh, to, to you? And it was set up, I think, as a little bit of a gotcha question for GW because okay. he was considered an in, in intellectual lightweight. Do you, do you remember what he said? The, no, but so I, I can't. You, you brought up GW. Yeah. I, I thought it was great. So other candidates said Plato for the political philosophy mm -hmm. or Kant for his way of dealing. And, yeah. and uh, totally genuinely, George Bush said, Jesus Christ, because he changed my heart. And that's that's the person that's had, that's had the most influence on me. You know, if somebody's not genuine, that'll come off as like hyper religious. Of course, uh, of course. Prattle. Yes. But he owned it. I, yeah, I can see. <laughs> and, I, I can see it. Yeah. All right. GW. We'll, uh, we'll do another top five about him <laughs> some some someday. So yeah, intellectual rigor yeah. is number three. Okay. Uh, we're down to number two. Okay. Uh, Keller brought very skillfully and winsomely the Bible world, the world of, of the Bible into the real and secular world, which in some ways is just to restate what I've, what I've said earlier, but again, coming from the Keller School of Thought with preaching, I want people at Liberty Callings, but I've heard it put this way, even if people aren't on the same page as I am, uh, not only do I want them to feel understood, but I also would want them to say, and this is one bar higher, he is telling the story of the baseline narratives of what I believe and is encapsulating and crystallizing them better than I would be able to mm -hmm. say myself. He really gets where I'm, where I'm coming from. And part of that too is you drill down to the baseline narrative. So the Jedi mind control Keller, when he says, well, the, the real issue here, I think there's something very right about that where, again, going back to marriage conflict, when Husband and wife can be angsty about something over here, but the real issue is something deeper and more persistent. And so if you just argue about, you know, why are the trash cans left out, that you're you're not getting at what yeah. what what the what the deeper things are. And and, and Keller consistently drilled down to those deeper you know, questions of identity, purpose, like the universe and everything, yeah. meaning where where is my worldview consistent? Where is my worldview not consistent? Where are the weak spots? Where are the Achilles heels? And we want to ask the questions that religious skeptics in our midst are asking about life, the universe, and everything better than they do. Not because we want to show them up, but say that we truly understand, and then step forward and saying the Bible, the gospel, Jesus crucified and resurrected gives better answers than, than what we're able to come up apart from them, and that was just the sine qua non, the in and out of, of Keller's ministry that, that won a lot of people to Jesus and won the respect of people that were not won, won to Jesus. Uh, part of this, too, is it was a little unusual, and Keller, Keller has his own set of haters. Uh, there, there was actually a book written years ago called Against Keller. <laughs> when it's like all, Straight all, to the point. Yeah, all of these people. And, and, and Keller himself has owned... Later in his life, he's gone back and said, I probably should have said this differently or done this differently. Like, humble and yeah. not, not against self-critique or, right. or critique of others. So, yeah. so he's, he would be the first person to say, yeah. no, I did not articulate and do everything right. perfectly. But it was a little unusual for, preacher, for preachers to draw from non-Christian sources. And whether it's, you know, philosophers, whether it's movies, whether yeah. it's Broadway shows... And 
there's even a school of like sub-Christian thought saying that's that's actually wrong, and you know preachers shouldn't use the means of the world to, mm-hmm. to explain things. And and there are some biblical arguments to be made in that direction. That's not the craziest thing in the world. Also, not my personal preference. And I see in the scriptures where Paul, for example, the Sermon on Mars Hill, he quotes poets and writers from the mm-hmm. ancient Greek tradition and both affirms them and also critiques them and, and, and tweaks them. So if I see people in the Bible doing that themselves, I, I'm comfortable doing yeah. it. But, but it was refreshing to me, and also I think it, it's a really good way of, one, building bridges between the biblical world and the world that we all live in as well. And then also there's a lot by God's common grace. There's a lot of like threads of truth out there. And so if you're able to say, hey, like the aspiration or the motivation of Keller would quote Les Mis a lot with uh, okay. a, a couple di- different points. They, that, that impulse of that character that we all affirm points us to the reality of, of the gospel. And even, even w- people that you would consider pillars of secularism have these thoughts and moments of reaching for, reaching for, for something more. And, and in my own preaching, if I'm looking for a quote to say one thing or another, and I go back into my quote database, if I find one, this is an interpretive choice, but from Keller, if I find basically the same thing said by a Christian writer and a non-Christian writer, nine times out of 10, unless there's a specific reason otherwise, I'm gonna quote the non-Christian writer yeah. to, to, to say that God is Lord of all things. He created this world, and so truth comes through even in mm-hmm. these unlikely places. Yeah. That's, that, that's Keller. I also tweak him a little bit. I, for, for the Liberty Community of Churches a couple years ago, Pat, I wrote a PDF uh, that's used internally. It's called What, is, what Makes a Liberty Sermon? So not just a Christian sermon, mm-hmm. not just a Protestant sermon, but what do we want to hear from sermons given in pulpits and in our communion? And a lot of that stuff it come, come, comes from Keller, but towards the end I said, one of the ways that we want to be different from Redeemer in New York City is that we want to mix our high cultural references with pop culture references a little bit more. Okay, okay. Keller was pretty resistant to, uh, to, to doing that. Uh, which, and, but on, in, in his defense, he, he, he didn't watch Marvel movies. So True. <laughs> True. But, 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 it, but I talk about, hey, you know, a sports reference every once in a while is not that bad of a thing. Right. And, you know, you, you can quote Seinfeld just as well as sure. Shakespeare. So. Yeah. But anyway, that's, that, that's how Liberty is slightly different, yeah. at least, than, than, than Keller. But, yeah, bringing the biblical world into the real and secular world. Okay. All right. Uh, uh, you mentioned Les Mis, and now the only thing I can think of now is, like, watching the movie. Yeah. Uh, I guess it came out like six or seven years yep. ago. I can imagine watching it with Tim Keller and him, like, slapping down my hot take that Russell Crowe actually was pretty good in that movie <laughs> <laughs> in every way. He, I'd probably get dunked on by him for that for that uh, opinion, he, I imagine. He'd do it humbly. Yeah. There but, you go. Yeah. All right. Pat, Pat, we need to wrap up to get yes. to the church service. Um, to, to, to number, number one. one. Yep. In an era of celebrity pastor scandals, flameouts, and burnouts, including some posthumous ones, there have been a couple prominent Christian leaders over the past decade that were on the up and up by appearances in their life, but after they died, some pretty dark and sinister things came out. It was said throughout the life of Keller and after his death, this guy was the real deal as far as being 
somebody deeply in love with Jesus, transparent about his own sins and mistakes, not driven by ego, and somebody that truly walked the walk of loving and following Jesus himself. He wasn't just talking about it. And all the more in the biography that I'm reading about Keller right now, for all of his intellectual heft, he carried every day of his life a vibrant piety. And he was somebody that loved prayer, that loved being in and experiencing the presence of the Lord in his own life, which was turned up all the more as he talked about his journey with cancer in, 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 in the later years. One of the silver linings of Keller's cancer is he didn't like to talk about himself that, that, that much, but he began to use his cancer diagnosis as giving more of a window in to how he's processing it, how he's praying, what he's hopeful about, what he's fearful about. So that gave a, a late career opportunity for us to see, wow, this guy really loves Jesus in, in a deep way. And both reflecting upon Keller after his death and reading the biography as well, it comes to me as a challenge that I need to continue to grow in loving and following Jesus and not slacking off in that. For a lot of the celebrity pastor burnouts and flameouts, it's not like they lost the thread at the very end. Instead, it was long declines where what used to be, charitably speaking, a true and vibrant love for Jesus and genuine humility, gospel transformation, just bit by bit by bit over time, ministry becomes a job and more ego and self creeps in until it's dominant and you're crossing boundaries that you never would have thought mm -hmm. that you would cross with earlier versions of, uh, of yourself. Keller, every step of the way into the end, rooted his life in Jesus crucified and resurrected. And from, to a person, people that knew him, he was the real deal. And none of that was put on and it was all genuine. So I, I have been the previous four influences, Pat, I could have told you the same thing five years ago, 10 years ago, but this one, about the importance of personal devotion to Jesus is an influence that's come upon me from Keller only this past month, and it's something that I feel very deeply right now. Okay. All right. So, so what, what will, like, um, like, what will Tim Keller's, like, ultimate legacy be? Or, like, what will, what, like, what, like, what are some, like, you know, 10, 20 years from now? Like, is it just, like, the humble devoted servant of Christ who, think, you know, is... Yeah, I, I think two things. Yeah. And this is maybe just to restate what I've said earlier. One of the ways will be my reasons five through two. Those those sure. sorts of ways that the shape of ministry yeah. has, has been influenced by him. And then the other one will be the number one where finally by God's grace, and he's not the only one. Jim Boyce was somebody else that also seem to be deeply in love with Jesus mm -hmm. throughout and there there's never been as far as I know, yeah. you know the rest of the story that came out about sure. him but by God's grace finally we have an example a counterexample of all of the horror stories about prominent pastors it's possible and even urgently necessary to live into that paradigm yeah and and pastors need to be called to a similar standard under Jesus yeah all right. 
Um, any any f- final thoughts, final words? Anything didn't get in there in the top five? I think we're good, I think man. We, I think we covered it all, but yeah, wanna, let's yeah. Uh, let's let's go talk about divine election. All right, <laughs> let's do it. <laughs> okay, Pat, thanks so much. Yes, hot, hot turtle doves. Wow, that was definitely a top five episode of Five Golden Things: The Liberty Lists. And remember, kids, Schadenfreude ain't just a river in Egypt. Wade in the water a little deeper anytime at libertycollingswood.org and find us at the usual socials. Make us a top five follow, and you'll always be our number one. Toodle pip!